towards running a full marathon, 42 kilometers in the coming months. Uh, there is a story about how the marathon came about. I'm not so sure if it's a true story, uh, but there was this uh, in ancient times, in ancient Greek times, um, there was a warning that uh, this army was approaching. And so uh, this one guy uh, got this message and he had to run roughly 42 kilometers to warn the king that this army was coming. And so fast did he run this, this 42 kilometers that he delivered the message and immediately fell down dead. And so there was this thinking that if anyone were to run 42 kilometers, they would instantly die, which of course we know is not quite the truth nowadays. Uh, but there are very few people who can understand the desire to want to run such a distance. Uh, for us, probably the biggest difficulty in getting to that kind of distance is the amount of time that it takes to train for it. Uh, in order to, to make that a huge distance, uh, you need to incrementally run longer and longer each and every time. Uh, last year in the New York Marathon, those who managed to complete the race completed in an average time of 4 hours and 37 minutes. Uh, our training schedule means that we need to run nearly every single day in the cold, whether the early winter mornings or the dark evenings. And in a week like this, it'll mean running in the rain. Now, why would you go through such torture? Most people would have totally given up before the first training run. And the reason I bring this up is because the author of Hebrews is writing to an audience who are facing perhaps a similar challenge. They were in a similar position. You see, the audience that he's writing to started off passionate about Jesus. They had set their sights on him and they were prepared to do whatever it takes to follow him. But as time progressed, as things passed, as they faced challenges of many kinds, they had begun to drift back into their old way of thinking. We get a glimpse of some of the challenges that they faced in Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. It says this. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. You see, when they first received Jesus, they had that passion. They were able to endure great suffering, insults, and persecution. But over time, that fire had started to wane. They looked back at how life used to be before they started this marathon journey with Christ. And so many had begun drifting. Many had lost sight of the goal. And as Joe mentioned to us last week, they were tempted to fall back into their comfortable religious customs. Some had chosen to go back to living under the law, under the system of sacrifices, and turn to human priests instead of to the one true God. The moment that I take my eyes off the glory of finishing a marathon, and the moment that I can't see past the daily grind of each training, that's the moment that my marathon dreams will die. And likewise, unless we see Jesus for who he really is, Unless we really fix our eyes on him, and unless we see him as the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, unless we recognize his true greatness and elevate him to the highest place, make him worthy of all our worship, 
unless we do those things, we too will drift back into living for merely temporary, unfulfilling, and lesser things. From the very beginning of Hebrews, verse 1, chapter 1, the author is systematically showing us how great Jesus is, how much better than, how much vastly superior, how incomparably great, how he is on a plane so far above that only a fool would replace him for anything else. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's better than any angel. And today in chapter 3, we're going to find that Jesus is superior to Moses. And in the coming weeks, we'll see how he's better than the temple, than any sacrifice, than the priests, than kings, than any other religious practice that you can name. Today, may God grant us a grander and more accurate vision of himself. May he open our eyes to see how vastly superior and infinitely greater he is to anything else that we might even dare to compare him to. And may it reignite our thirst and our hunger for more of him and rekindle within us a passionate pursuit to see him more intimately. I'm going to invite my sister Cass to come and read to us from Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6. Thanks, Cass. Filling in for my brother who's not here to do the reading today. (laughs) Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Thanks, John and his sister. All right. Uh, So today I actually don't have a tidy three-point sermon uh, to share with you. Uh, Instead of attempting to fit this whole chapter into three main points, I've decided to look in detail at the first six verses, what I think is the meat of the passage, uh, and then I'll be selectively summarizing the remainder of the chapter later on. Uh, I do encourage you to spend the time to go through the whole chapter, of course, perhaps in your small groups or in your own personal time. Uh, But why don't we look to God now to help us as we listen from his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son, your Son Jesus. We thank you that he is superior to everything else, that he's superior to the angels, to the prophets, to Moses, as we're going to find out today. And Father, as we do so, I pray that you help us to understand this truth, to understand, to meditate upon it, to really internalize what it means to make you number one. Father, I pray that you give us receptive hearts this morning, and Lord, that you transform us. You transform those areas of our lives that have not put you first, that you might be given your rightful place in our lives. I pray that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, 
fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Therefore, word in this verse tells us to look back to chapter 1 and chapter 2. We saw that Jesus is superior to angels and that the message that Jesus brings to us is also greater than what the angels brought. And we also saw how Jesus became a man to atone for our sins. And so because of who he is, because of what he has done, we ought to fix our thoughts on him. Looking more closely at this verse, you can see that the author is talking to Christians. He's addressing his audience as holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, who acknowledge Jesus as their apostle and high priest. He isn't trying to convince unbelievers that Jesus is this great guy. No, the author is speaking to believers like you and I, and he's saying that it's necessary for us to pay close attention to Jesus. It's necessary for us who claim to know Jesus to meditate on him and to spend time with him. Jesus is our apostle and our high priest. An apostle is one who is sent. Jesus is God's sent one. That is, Jesus is God's representative to us. But at the same time, Jesus is also our high priest. The priest is the one who stands before God on the people's behalf. Jesus is also our representative to God. 1 Timothy 2.5 puts it like this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Because Jesus is superior to the angels, because he became man for our sake, and because he is the two-way link between God and man, it is only right that we should fix our thoughts on him. The Amplified Bible says that we should thoughtfully and attentively consider Jesus. The Message Bible says it like this, take a good hard look at Jesus. If there's one thing the author would have us do, it would be this, to take a good hard and careful look at who this Jesus is. And we're going to achieve this today by comparing and contrasting Jesus to Moses. In verse 2, the greatness of Moses. It says this, Jesus, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Moses and Jesus were both faithful to God. If you were to look at Moses' resume, you would, you would arguably have been, he would arguably, arguably have been the most impressive of all the Old Testament greats. Like Jesus, Moses was also the go-between God and his people. Moses was commissioned by God to deliver his people from slavery, and he would continue to be God's mouthpiece to the people in the wilderness. As a baby, Moses was protected by God. He was put in a basket on the Nile River, and he was rescued and grew up amongst royalty. It was Moses whom God spoke to in the form of a burning bush. It was Moses who defied Pharaoh and unleashed miracle after miracle and plague after plague of destruction. It was Moses who parted the Red Sea and who walked through it safely on dry ground. It was Moses who experienced God's miraculous provision in manna raining down from heaven. It was Moses who gave the people the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. It was Moses who lifted up the bronze snake that whoever was bitten could look at it and live. It was Moses who spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to their friend. It was Moses who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament from Genesis to Deuteronomy 
It covers creation right through to the Israelites' journey to the promised land. It includes the law and teachings which underpin Jewish society even to this day. Moses, who alone when asked in an interview, what is your greatest strength, could accurately and non-sarcastically reply that it is his humility. Numbers 12.3 says this, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. Imagine being able to add that to your resume. And at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says this about Moses. In chapter 34, verses 10 to 12, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. It's no wonder that the Jews revered Moses. There really was no other prophet quite like him. And the author of Hebrews makes no attempt to downplay the greatness of Moses. He truly was faithful in God's house, God's house just like Jesus was. But here is where the similarities end. We find out in verse 3 that Jesus is even greater than Moses. It says this, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. The Hebrews author shows us just how great Jesus is by using the metaphor of a builder and his house. We're going to watch a quick video, hopefully. How good's the briefcase chair one? Uh, when you look at these cool inventions, you think, man, they're pretty cool. But then, at least I think, whoever designed those things must have been really smart. I mean, some of those things, how do you even come up with those ideas? Yes, their inventions are cool, but the one who invented them is even greater. 
in the same way the builder or architect is greater than the building itself. Now, I might be wrong, but I don't think that Jesus could run faster than Usain Bolt, at least not on land. And I don't think that Jesus could play tennis better than Roger Federer. I don't think that Jesus could write better plays than Shakespeare or compose better music than Mozart. Jesus couldn't take LeBron James on in basketball. And he probably couldn't even lift what Joe lifts or account like Carissa accounts. But Jesus isn't superior in the, in the sense that he just does everything better than ev- anyone else ever could. Although it is true that Jesus is a better apostle and a better high priest than Moses ever was, that's not the point. Jesus is superior to Moses because he is the one who created Moses and all those other people. And as we're reminded in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus not only created them, but he also is the one who sustains them by his powerful word. Jesus is superior to Usain Bolt, not because he can outrun him, but because every step that Usain Bolt takes is only possible because of Jesus. Every self-alley-oop that LeBron makes, like in Game 3, is only because Jesus sustains him. All creation is held together because of Jesus' powerful word. Anything that Moses ever accomplished and can put on his resume, only possible because of Jesus. That's why Jesus is superior to Moses and all the rest of us as well. Paul puts it a bit like this in Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 18. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is to Moses what a builder is to his or her building. Jesus is to Moses what I am to the software that I write each day for my job. When it comes to comparing Jesus to Moses, Jesus is is on an entirely different playing level. He's worthy of far more honor and far more glory, and there is no fair comparison that can be made to him. Yes, Moses was great, but Jesus is infinitely greater because Jesus made Moses. In verse 4, we find that Jesus is God. It says this, For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. We've just been told in verse 3 that Jesus is the builder of Moses. And now in verse 4, we're told that God is the builder of everything. And so if Jesus is the builder of Moses, and if God is the builder of everything, then it flows logically that the author is really saying that Jesus is God. The claim to Jesus' deity is one that we must not miss. As great as Moses was, nobody in their right mind would claim that he is as great as the God that he served. Now, throughout Scripture, we are given insight to the divine nature of the Godhead. While the word Trinity may not be used explicitly, the unity and the diversity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is evident throughout. To explain the doctrine of the Trinity accurately is probably best left to wiser and more informed minds than my own, But let me offer some simplistic but true statements that can help us when thinking about God. The first one is that there is only one God. 
The second one is God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The third is each person of the Trinity, that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are fully God and equally God. And finally, God is one in essence, but three in person. And now I know those statements probably raise more questions than they really answer, but what's important for us to recognize here is that Jesus is God. And we can say correctly that Jesus is God and Jesus is also the Son of God. Moses, on the other hand, is not God and he should not be revered or identified as such. But because Jesus is God, he will forever be greater than Moses. In verse 5 and 6, tells us that Moses is God's servant, but Jesus is God's son. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. Jesus is above and beyond the house, whereas Moses is a part of God's house. The distinction between a servant and a son is similar to the argument the author makes between the angels and the son. If you remember back in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. A son carries the authority of his father. Messing with the son means messing with the father. The son is the owner of the house in that he inherits the father's business and is the rightful heir to his father's estate. The son has privileged access to his father 24-7. The son enjoys the acknowledgement and endorsement of the father. A son will eat at his father's table and share in his father's best. The son is appointed as the head and has lordship over the household. A servant, on the other hand, addresses his master as master, but he will also address the master's son as his master too. The servant's relationship with the master is primarily obligatory. His responsibilities and duties are contractual. A servant will wait on the family before eating himself. A servant is considered another part of the master's house. Jesus has the privileged position as God's one and only son who rules over God's house. He is the one who owns it, who rules over it, who has lordship. Jesus is the one who builds the house, who invests in it. He's the one who provides for it. He is the one who is ultimately responsible for it, and he ensures its success. He is the head of the house. Moses, as a servant, doesn't own the house, nor does he rule over it, nor does he provide for it. Jesus is clearly superior to Moses because Jesus is God's son over God's house, whereas Moses is God's servant in God's house. And finally, the end of verse 6 tells us to put our hope in Jesus. And we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Of course, the house that's being referred to is in fact God's church. It's a reference to his people. It's all who share this heavenly calling, who acknowledge Jesus as apostle, as their apostle and as their high priest. Later on in verse 14, the author repeats something quite similar. He says this, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. We look at verses like this that say, If we do such and such, then we will have some, such and such. 
And we might be tempted to think that the author is saying that we are saved by our own ability to cling to our faith. And while the difference is subtle, it's an important distinction that we need to highlight here. We're not saved because we try really hard to hold onto our faith. The author isn't saying that there is some extra condition that we need to fulfill in order to be saved. Rather, the evidence that someone is genuinely saved already is their firm confidence in Christ and that the hope they have is in Jesus. Or to put it another way, how can you tell that you are saved? How do you know that you are a legitimate member of God's household? Well, one way to gauge that would be to ask, where do you place your hope? What do you hope in? What gives you confidence for the future? Is it yourself, your own skills, your own gifts and abilities? Maybe you've managed in the past with sheer willpower and determination to get by. Perhaps that's what gives you confidence for the future. Maybe you've built up some good security. Maybe you own your own house. You have various investments, shares or the like. Maybe the future is bright for you because of those things. Maybe you're tempted to place your confidence in your own physical health and fitness. Maybe you ran a half marathon and now you think you can do a full one. Maybe your hope is in your family. Maybe you trust that because your family looks after you, you will get through everything. Well, the word of God to you today is to seriously consider Jesus, is to fix your thoughts instead on him. Take a good look at Jesus and see if he is not the best place to put your hope in. If you can confidently and honestly say that your hope is in Jesus, then you can rest assured that your faith is real. But for those of us who are unsure, who perhaps once knew but now can't say for for certain, turn back to Jesus. He's superior to Moses. He's infinitely greater than. He's the creator and ruler over God's house. He's our way to God, and he is faithful. He's so awesome that it doesn't even make any sense to put your hope in anything else. And that brings us to the rest of the chapter, which I will summarize. I'm going to invite Cass to come and read it for us. Uh, Verses 7 to 19. Thanks, Cass. Verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared my oath, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The remainder of chapter 3 is laid out to us as a challenge. It's a challenge particularly for those of us who perhaps are drifting away from God. The author uses the Israelites who wandered in the desert uh, under Moses as a lesson for us to learn from. 
their sin is unbelief. But the root cause of their sin is an issue of the heart. Four times the author describes their hearts. You see in verse 7 that they have hardened hearts. In verse 10, their hearts are always going astray. In verse 12, they have unbelieving hearts that turn away from God. And again in verse 15, their hearts are hardened in rebellion. Despite the fact that they knew and experienced firsthand the miraculous provision of God, their stubborn hearts continually went astray as they went about doing things in their own strength, in their own way, instead of God's. There are two ways in which we are challenged to tackle the issue of a hardened heart. The first is found in verse 12. It says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We each have the individual responsibility to introspect our own hearts and to ensure that we maintain a soft and receptive heart to the things of God. The decision to turn away from God is not made by a single defining moment. A hardened heart is the result of many small choices to resist God's will. Every time we choose to disregard God's voice, we make it a little bit harder next time to hear from him. It's not that God stops speaking, it's that our hearts grow numb to his voice. There was this illustration. It was a cold, wintry day. There was a carcass on a sheet of ice floating slowly down the river. An eagle flying overhead spied the easy prey below and descended upon it and began to eat. As he did, the water of the river began slowly pushing the icy float toward the edge of the waterfall just ahead. Thinking that he would simply fly away when the time came, he continued to eat. As he ate, the floating island of ice drifted closer and closer to the falls until the roar of gushing water echoed throughout the canyon. He waited until the very mists of the falls began rising above his head. And finally, he stretched forth his great wings to fly. But unknown to him, his talons sunken in the frozen flesh of his prey, had frozen solid. His fate was sealed as the float and himself, frozen to it, plunged to the waters below. The eagle ignored the warning signs, and little by little, it wasn't long until its talents had become frozen solid. Had the eagle been aware of the danger and regularly checked his cold feet, disaster could have been averted. The warning that we are to learn from the Israelites' unbelief is that if we continue to resist God's Spirit, then little by little, our hearts will become like a lump of hardened clay. Hardened clay is of no use to anyone except to be thrown out. We need to regularly check the condition of our hearts. David does it like this in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Have you been listening and yielding to God's Spirit lately? Have you been regularly spending time in His presence and applying the things that He shows you to your life? When's the last time that God revealed something to you that He wanted to change and that you went ahead and did it? When's the last time you really bared your heart to God and allowed Him to direct your thoughts? Ronald Knox, a Roman Catholic priest in the 1900s, said this, The greatest human tragedy is not a broken heart, but a hard heart. The second way in which we are to prevent our hearts from becoming hardened is in verse 13, the call to encourage one another. It says this, But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, 
so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The truth is, there will come a time when we are blinded or ignorant of our own sin. That's what's called sin's deceitfulness. It's the trap of thinking everything is going just fine, just as that eagle thought, when in fact it isn't. One of the greatest benefits of staying in close fellowship with other believers is the accountability that we have with one another. It's when we are blinded or unaware of our own sinful nature that we need our brothers and sisters to lovingly correct us. It's saying to our brother or sister, I'm concerned for you and I'm not sure that this is what God wants for you. Can we talk about it? In my own life, I can think back to a number of times where people confronted me out of a genuine concern for myself and made me aware of sin's deceitfulness that had crept into my life. I was not even aware of some of the things that God wanted to change in me. And I'm thankful to God for those people, that they loved me enough to confront and to admonish me, that they had the courage to do so. Notice also that encouraging one another is not something that just happens once on a Sunday. The author says that it's something that we need to do daily. Drew's and Joe's daily devotion can be a great source of encouragement on WhatsApp, but I think the author of Hebrews was, was expecting something a little more personal. So let me ask you, who are you personally encouraging today? And who will you personally encourage tomorrow, on Monday, and on Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then every day after that for the rest of your life? The little phrase, as long as it is called today, is like saying, while we, while we still have the chance, and there's an urgency to the matter. You never know when it will be too late to encourage someone. And you might be tempted to think, well, nobody's encouraging me, so why should I encourage anyone else? But that, of course, misses the entire point. Love doesn't ask what's in it for me, rather it asks, what can I give for your benefit? So would you make it a point to encourage someone today while it's still called today? Would you make it a point to be generous with your words and point someone to Jesus this week. You don't know how one word, a generous word, can impact someone's day or week or month or even life. You see, we're all susceptible to the deceitfulness of sin. We're all prone to the hardening of our own hearts, especially when trials come our way. We all need one another, and we can all benefit from mutual encouragement. Today, the voice of God is speaking. In the past, God spoke through prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he speaks to us by his Son. Whether by the written word or the word become flesh, God is speaking through Jesus by his Holy Spirit to each of us this morning. And so I urge you to fix your thoughts on Jesus. Take a good long look at who he is. While there is no doubt that Jesus was a great man, only Jesus has the title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the Son of God, and He is also God. He is the builder of God's house. He alone is worthy to reconcile man back to God. Put your hope in Him and Him alone, and you will not be disappointed. Elevate Him far above and beyond anything and everything else in your life, because He shall reign supreme. Have you been growing a bit weary of life? Has the daily grind and all it entails been sapping your passion for Jesus? Then check your heart today. 
Open it to Jesus. Ask him to come in to remove your heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh once more. Maybe you know someone who's in need of encouragement. Then as your brothers and sisters, while it is still today, let us encourage one another daily. I'd like to finish by reading to us Psalm 95, a psalm that the, Hebrew, that the author of Hebrews clearly had in his mind when he wrote chapter 3. Psalm 95, verse 1 to 11. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that there truly is none that can compare to him. Father, I pray that in our lives we would not dare to compare him to other things, but that he would take his rightful place unchallenged on the throne of our lives. Father, I pray for those of us today who are struggling to see your glory and your majesty, who are struggling to see you in all your greatness. Father, open our eyes. Holy Spirit, shape and mold our hearts. Help us to acknowledge Jesus, our great apostle and our great high priest, whom there is no one like. Jesus, you are superior. You're superior in that you are the creator, that you are the one who gave us life, who continues to sustain us even now. But you also brought us back to you by giving up yourself. Jesus, thank you. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to encourage one another, to really have a genuine concern for each other, have a love for one another that would go beyond the superficial. One where we can encourage each other daily, that we would not neglect the duty that we have to each other. And Father, I pray for those of us who are struggling with hardened hearts. Lord, I pray that you help us to invite you in, to say, God, search me, know me, know my thoughts, my anxious ways, lead me to the way everlasting. Father, help us, help my brothers and sisters before me. Help us to see you as who you really are. Jesus, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. It's in your name we pray. Amen.